Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Father God, I pray for your anointing upon me, that you would enable me to faithfully preach your word. I pray that uh, this uh, message would be an encouragement to each one, that we would be instructed and edified in uh, your counsel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Guidance is a, a very controversial topic. There's no question about it. And uh, in a sense, uh, if I was smart, I wouldn't preach on this because it's almost guaranteed that there's going to be a point or two that somebody's going to find, uh, uh, take issue with, and that's fine, that's okay. I've said repeatedly to you in the past that you need to be Bereans and only accept from my lips what comes straight from the Scripture, right? And uh, we're going to try to uh, work through this. Uh, I'm convinced it's all corn, but if you find any corn cob, feel free to eat the corn and throw away the corn cob. Uh, but controversial or not, a number of you have had questions on guidance and wondered what in the world are we to think of the subject, and I think uh, I would be uh, 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 deficient in my calling if I did not give my best shot at trying to teach on this uh, important topic. What does it mean when we've been fasting and praying and uh, saying, Lord, uh, we need your guidance, what does it mean that we get God's guidance. What does that look like? Uh, this is an area that uh, many people struggle over. What does it mean that we are uh, doing the calling that God has given to us as individuals or as a church? I mean, there's so many different ministries that we could do that we're, uh, we couldn't possibly be involved in. How do we know what it is God wants us to be involved in in our calling? And there's many different answers that people give to that. And I have to admit that I myself have changed over time. Uh, before I was reformed, uh, I tended to emphasize the subjective uh, side of this and went to an extreme on that to the point where it actually brought me into bondage because I was adding norms to the Scripture, and that's a dangerous thing. And when I became reformed and I saw the sufficiency of Scripture for ethics, you know, for all of, all, all of life... Uh, it was absolutely liberating. And if you've never been in bondage to subjectivism, you probably can't appreciate how liberating it is to understand the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. But what many times happens when uh, you're making wholesale changes is you go from one extreme to the other extreme. And that's what I did. Uh, I rejected everything subjective uh, whatsoever. At least I thought that I did. I told myself that I rejected everything subjective. I don't think it's really possible. Um, the subjective is all, always there whether you uh, like it or not. But I tried and I felt safe, but it was not 100% biblical. It was a lot better than I was uh, before when I was in the subjectivist position. And basically, the position that I held to at that time is the position articulated in uh, uh, is it Gary Metter's uh, book uh, on the back table? And that's a great book, by the way. It's a book that I highly recommend that you read. I have not read anything as good as that in describing how a biblical worldview frames our decision makings in ways we wouldn't even realize. It's a, it's a wonderful treatment of that. It's great on dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. And so right off the bat, I want to affirm as strongly as I can that I still believe in the absolute 
sufficiency of Scripture for faith and for life. It's the only standard for truth. It's the test. It's the judge for truth. And it's uh, the only foundation for our faith. I endorse that 100%. But can we say, really, that there is no true knowledge outside the Bible that can be tested by this test of all truth claims? What's the point of having a test if there aren't any truth claims to test? Uh, not even Gordon Clark went that far. I think um, what we can say is that I think we can safely say that we cannot prove that we know anything apart from the Bible, okay? Uh, we can know it, but we can't prove that we know apart from the Bible. And if you want to find out why that's true, talk to Travis or Kurt. There's a number of people could uh, share the philosophical reasons for that. But uh, Gordon Clark a number of times has pointed out John 1 teaches that Jesus enlightens every person who comes into the world, who was born into the world. And by the way, that's one of several scriptures that speaks of enlightenment, contrary to uh, Metter's assertion, uh, the word enlightenment or illumination uh, is a, a biblical term. Uh, if you've read the book in chapter 9 and following, he says that he basically rejects the Reformed doctrine of, of illumination. And he says it's not even a biblical word. Well, we'll see in a moment that there's a number of places where the literal word illumination or enlightened uh, occurs. But anyway, back to what we're talking about here. Romans 1 is clear that people in countries who have never read the scriptures still have sufficient knowledge about God and his will that they are left without excuse. That's a kind of guidance for our conscience. It's not normative. Only the Bible is normative, but it is a knowledge in the scripture. And Romans 1 calls it knowledge and calls it truth. Now, Gordon Clark points out that they could not have gained that knowledge by induction. Induction is where you examine a whole pile of different things and come to a conclusion. You examine a thousand crows and come to the conclusion crows are black, okay? Uh, he says you could not have gained that. You could stare at rocks and trees and sunsets uh, all your life, and if there was not an internal revelation, you'd never come to a valid induction. Actually, Clark says, you know, there is no such thing as a valid induction. But you could not get that from the creation out there, nor is it uh, that they get that, get that knowledge from deduction because they don't have a Bible. They don't have biblical axioms from which they could do, deduce these principles of theology. And so uh, Gordon Clark rightly points out, and other Reformed people rightly point out, that this is a revelation that they have within them. Okay? Um, so uh, secondly... On this deduction area, Scripture indicates they didn't get it by looking at creation apart from an inward revelation. They didn't get it by looking at the Scripture. God has imprinted on their soul a knowledge of His law and a knowledge of God to leave them without excuse. So that Psalm 58 says that babies, before they've learned your language and can read the Bible, that they self-consciously start sinning. In fact, they even start lying. As soon as they are born, they speak lies. It says in Psalm, um, Psalm 5, read, read that. I think it's Psalm 5, verse 5. Psalm 58 uh, talks about that. They go astray as soon as they are... Uh, now, it's not sophisticated, you know, with their cries and the coos and the different ways that they communicate. Not as sophisticated as how adults lie, but the Scripture indicates even babies lie. You cannot get away from the law. Even if you reject the Bible, you've never read the Bible, God has imprinted that law upon people's hearts so that um, uh, they are without excuse. Now, Romans 1 says they try to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's verse 18. But if they didn't have the truth already, they wouldn't be able to suppress any truth. Okay, they already have it within them. And so there's a truth outside of the Scripture. It's written on the heart. And verse 20 says that these things are clearly seen by those without a Bible being understood. They're without excuse. Now, the reason I bring this up is that some of you guys uh, have been reading uh, John Robbins' stuff and Gary uh, Crampton. Now, they agree with North, I mean, not North, with um, uh, Clark when they're talking about Romans 1. And then they seem to say something totally different elsewhere when they say there isn't any truth outside of the Scripture. Now, it's true that the word that's written on your heart, it's propositional truth, uh, is the same as Scripture. So in a sense that that is true, but I think that we need to be clear, people who don't have the Bible still have the truth imprinted on their soul. And so what we're going to do, I think it would be helpful right at the outset, 
is to give some definitions and some parameters so that you understand where I'm coming from. There won't be uh, any um, miscommunication. I'm going to give you some of my presuppositions. First presupposition, the first doctrine that I believe, and I'm not going to have the time to prove this, is that Isaiah 8 and Daniel 9 and other passages prophesy that prophecy in the technical sense of the word as inspired revelation would cease in 70 A.D. After 70 A.D., vision and prophet would be sealed up. There would be no more uh, prophecy. Now, I think everybody here believes that, and so I'm not going to even try to take the time to prove it. If you happen to be one who believes in ongoing prophecy, you know, I'll be happy to talk with you about that, but that's neither here nor there. I just want you to understand where I'm coming from so that you're not interpreting my words in a different sense. Uh, no more ongoing prophecies. So when I am pre uh, asking for guidance, what am I asking for? Am I asking for an infallible word from the Lord? And I say, absolutely not. Uh, there is only one infallible word, and it is the Bible. The canon is closed, and there is no more authoritative revelation that God is going to be giving. And Metters buys into that as well. A second presupposition that I hold to is that there's a huge distinction between inspiration and revelation. Uh, revelation is a broad concept that includes inspiration, but inspiration is just a subset. Revelation includes inspiration. It also includes uh, general revelation, includes illumination. It's a, it's a much broader concept. And uh, I think this is a very, very important distinction to keep in mind. Every Reformed systematic theology that I have on my bookshelf um, emphasizes that this distinction must be made if we're to preserve the integrity of the Scriptures. For example, uh, when charismatics uh, justify mistaken prophecies, they say, oh, well, you know, some of us only get it 50% right. Um, what they're doing, and they, they say, well, in the New Testament, you know, in the Bible, there were prophets who made mistakes as well. We'd have to say no, because that undermines the inspiration of the Bible, if you say that. The Bible does not make any mistakes. God himself says that over and over in the Word. And prophets did not make mistakes if they were true prophets of God. They were inspired. They were inerrant, whether it was written prophecy or whether it was oral prophecy. Okay? So we need to make a distinction in our minds between revelation as a whole and that subset where God gives an extra anointing of inspiration uh, and keeps uh, the uh, prophets from making uh, any, any mistakes. For example, Romans 1, as we just mentioned, indicates that God has revealed to people by putting onto their hearts a knowledge about God's existence and of his attributes. Does that mean that they are inerrant? That they're inspired? Well, no. Pagan theology is all messed up because of sin, because of suppressing the truth, and they're uncomfortable with this knowledge, and so they change things. Same is true of the law written on the heart. Uh, they can't get away from that law and their conscience bothering them, but they can distort it, they can suppress it. And so we wouldn't want to say all revelation is inerrant. We'd want to say inspired revelation is inerrant. And it is infallible. And uh, what God did, everybody has revelation, but there was only a small handful of people known in the Scripture as prophets who were given that extra measure of inspiration so that they infallibly received the revelation, infallibly communicated that revelation. God says they weren't moved by themselves. They were moved by the Holy Spirit in a special measure. All men have revelation, but not all are inspired. Now, a third belief that I hold to is that even though inspiration and prophecy have ceased, God continues to reveal himself and give guidance to every man, woman, and child who's ever born, whether they want that guidance or not. Now, some get more than others, right? But whether they want it or not, they get it. Now, Reformed theologians have typically grouped th these forms of revelation under three categories, wisdom, illumination, and faith, under those uh, three categories. But they are, all are forms of, of revelation. And um, uh, so Romans indicates not only has God revealed his moral law, basic theology about God's attributes, but there's other aspects of his image in man, like communication and logic. And so we speak of this as an intuitive understanding of right and wrong, an intuitive ability to learn a language. Uh, you know, animals can't do that. Humans can because it's built right into them, the basic structures of language. Uh, it's not something we gain by induction or deduction. It's by revelation. It's intuitive. It's right there automatically. 
Now, we're still on the introduction, okay? And what I want to do right now is I want us to be Bereans who look through the Scriptures to see whether what I have said is true or is not true. On the top is just gobbledygook there to many of you. It's Greek words. And uh, these Greek words are all different synonyms that are translated in the New Testament uh, revelation. The first one, apocalypto, just means it's a verb to reveal. Uh, the next one, apocalypsis, is the noun form. And, uh, in fact, if you uh, have been studying much in the book of Revelation, you'll uh, remember that it's sometimes referred to as the apocalypse. Uh, that's the same word for revelation, apocalypsis. Anacalupto is another word for revelation. Then phanerao means to show or to reveal. Then there's two words for illumination, photizo uh, and photismos, and both of them deal with light. It's like the light's going on in your head. It's, well, that's what illumination is. And revelation is God taking off the veil and helping us to see things we didn't recognize uh, before and that we did not see before. Um, there is another word for inspiration and one for prophecy as well, uh, and I didn't put it up there because I want to restrict myself to the words that are used for the broad range of, of revelation. And the reason I'm giving these words to you, you might wonder, I don't read Greek, but I want you to see it in all of the verses we're going through. So you can see I'm not pulling a fast one on you. It's coming straight from the Scripture there. And once you see this, I think you'll be in a better position to eat the corn and throw away the corn cob from various uh, books on guidance that are out there. Okay, first of all, we've already quoted John 1, 9. Jesus is said to be the light, this is the pre-incarnate son, the light who enlightens every person, every man coming into the world. That's the, the word photizo there. Not only does Scripture say we live and move and have our being in Him, every atom of our bodies are upheld by the word of His power, but He says we cannot even think if God did not enable us to have rationality. And that's a humbling thing when you begin to think about it. Now, this could include as well knowledge of the law, knowledge of God, and things like that, but uh, most theologians believe it especially is re re uh, referring to logic and rationality within man. The second point uh, we have already looked at, it's the knowledge of God, but I want you to notice up there that the words for, the Greek words for revelation are in, included uh, to describe that. Verse 20 says that God's existence and His attributes are clearly seen, being known by such men. And then the two verses, verses 18 and 19, explain why. Wrath of God is revealed. It's a verb, verb apocalypto. God has shown it to them. And interestingly, at least to Travis and me, it would be interesting. Uh, I don't know about all of you, but Psalm 19 is not shy in describing this knowledge as being speech and language. Now, Gordon Clark points out that this proves that this knowledge was not gained by an inductive process of looking at creation. If it is language, if it is speech, it means it is propositional truth, right? Speech and language is propositional truth. And it's propositional truth that God has imprinted onto our spirit right from conception and on. Now, the reason I'm belaboring this is if we do not begin to understand the subjective side of revelation, however dim and however feeble that light is that people have, if we don't understand that, we're going to be misinterpreting scriptures and we're going to not have a full understanding of what guidance is about. We could go to one extreme or the other on, on, this, on this issue. And uh, we're going to be looking at understanding guidance next week. This week, we're just laying the groundwork. The third thing people can have without a Bible is a knowledge of God's law, and we've already mentioned this. And notice how comprehensive this is under number three there. Verses 18 to 19 say, the wrath of God is revealed, that's a form of the verb apocalypto, apocalyptotai, is revealed against all, not just some, but against all ungodliness. And so it's the complete moral law that God has put on people's hearts. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They already have the truth of the law. How? Verse 19 says, God has shown it to them, literally has revealed it to them. John 16, 8 says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me. So it's not just believers who have this guidance in terms of moral law. He convicts even unbelievers of sin. 
okay, of the moral law as well. Now, later we're going to be seeing that reform systematics like uh, Shedd's were right in seeing wisdom as a form of uh, revelation for believers. Now, I've included two subcategories, and in the handout, you don't have to take notes like Wilde. I've got handouts that, that cover all of this material afterwards, but I wanted you to listen and not be reading ahead, you know, and missing everything that I that I uh, say here, so I didn't give the handouts ahead of time, but you can pick them up afterwards if you want. But uh, wisdom is something that God gives even to people who don't have a Bible, the Scripture indicates. And there are many verses indicating God gives uh, wisdom to uh, a warrior. He is the one who gives wisdom to the farmer. And I've given one example that I preached on a number of weeks ago from Isaiah 28, where he talks about different seeds and different soils and how they manage the soils. And it says there that God instructs him. God teaches him. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. And so even that area has to do with the Lord's guidance. Now, that farmer may not have even known that he was being guided in that area, that this wisdom came from God. He may not have glorified God. Uh, when he had that. Now, let me clarify something. Is God saying that the Bible is a textbook on farming techniques? We'd have to say no. Uh, God didn't give the Bible to tell you, you know, which seeds go with which kinds of soil and how much water to put in. Now, Metters is right that the Bible gives us a worldview and it gives us sufficient axioms that we're able to make kinds of decision-making, but taking the general principles to the specifics of what we do uh, takes wisdom and it takes the spirit to enable us but he indicates even people without a bible are given wisdom from almighty god and they need to glorify god which they fail to do and shed and hodge and others appeal to proverbs and daniel 1 and exodus 35 and a number of other uh, scriptures to indicate we can go to wisdom for wisdom to, to the lord for the jobs that we have our air conditioning man um jim abrahams he's he's always going to the lord on that you know he uh, and he gives glory to, to God. You know, he's stumped on a problem. He says, Lord, I'm stumped. You know, I just don't know what's going on here. And he prays for wisdom. And the Lord grants it many, many, many times. James 1 says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And uh, that's something that goes beyond the objective to the internal. And then finally, there are ways, and finally, this is on dealing with outside the Bible. There are ways that God stirs up the hearts of people to motivate them to get involved in certain projects. Now, I've not included on this part. On the second part of our, that deals with how God's wisdom through the Scripture is applied, I bring up a similar point. But this is not even necessarily, um, you know, flowing from a worldview that's Christian. Now, in the New Testament, it does talk about Jesus being moved by the Spirit, being driven by the Spirit in the wilderness. It talks about, uh, about the disciples being moved by the Lord. But this can be applied even to people who don't know the Scriptures. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wants. Uh, here is one that's speaking of uh, pagan Artaxerxes. Ezra 7, 20 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. God was the one who gave him that desire to write this letter and to promote what was happening as the people had returned uh, to Israel, but uh, he wasn't even, he wasn't even a, a believer. Um, none of these things are normative, and one of the cautions, did I put it on this handout? Oh yeah, right up at the top, I put a caution in there that it doesn't matter what movings and what promptings and what urgings subjectively that you may have, none of them are normative ever. Even if that moving comes from the Lord, it is not normative. In other words, if, um, if uh, you are prompted to do a given thing, it's not going to be a must-do or an ethical command because otherwise it would contradict 1 Timothy 2, uh, 3, 16 through 17, which says that the Word of God is sufficient to thoroughly equip us for every good work. If you add even one good work to the Bible, you've made a liar out of Paul, right? And so it's not normative, but it's still important. It is very 
uh, beneficial thing that the Lord uh, gives. But I, I want to give an example of why I say that even if the prompting or the moving is from the Lord, it is not normative. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 24, and we'll give an example of why that is the case. 2 Samuel chapter 24 is a passage where God moves the heart of David to test David whether he's going to follow the scriptures or his inward subjective feelings. 2 Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. In verse 3, God has Joab warn David that this violates biblical law, so God's giving him a way out. Uh, he doesn't have to follow that, but David stubbornly does this anyway. He overrules Joab's protestations, and they go out and they number Israel, and God judges as a result of this violation of biblical law. David later repents, but how many thousands of people were judged and died uh, in, in the process? And I give this illustration because it's as vivid an example as I could find that your burdens, your heart movements, your promptings, your urgings, your hunches, they all must be subject to the Word of God. Okay? David couldn't use the excuse that, well, I feel moved by the Lord to do this. Uh, even here it says he was moved by the Lord, but if you'd look at, at um, 1 Chronicles 21.1, you will see why I say this, because God used an agent by the name of Satan, to move David's heart to do this. God says, yep, go ahead, and you can move Satan's heart, I mean, move David's uh, heart on this. Now, here's the interesting thing. David didn't realize that Satan was moving him. Uh, I talked to a pastor one time who was in the process of divorcing his wife, and he was trying to talk uh, a woman into divorcing her husband so that they could get married. And I confronted on him on this very strongly, and... Uh, and he told me uh, that he, he, he was convinced that God had moved him to do this. And I said, that can't be because it contradicts God's word. And he said, well, it may not be God's perfect will, but it's his permissive will. And I said, I don't care who moved you. I can guarantee you from the scripture that you ought not to do this because it contradicts what God has to say in his word. And, you know, with... Examples like that that can be multiplied many times over in the church, it's no wonder to me that Metters and others say, let's just ditch the subjective altogether, right? It's just not safe. It's not reliable. People use it to excuse all kinds of things. For example, Metters points out uh, people are shown something from the Word that they need to do, and they say, well, the Spirit hasn't convicted me about that. And he says, well, get convicted, you know? I mean, this is the Spirit's word that he's written objectively, you know? Get convicted. What's your problem here? And that's what we need to see. If God has said in his word that we need to do something, that's all that we need for it to be normative in our lives. The Bible is the only normative thing that should govern our behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that the subjective doesn't have a place, but it's a subsidiary place, and it's an important one, and we'll especially develop all, of, all three parts of guidance next week. But I say that your urgings, your promptings, etc., they're not normative, even if they come uh, from the, the Lord. Now, I have to go on to say that I've picked a negative example, but most of the examples of the subjective movings and urgings and stirring up of the heart that the Scripture talks about are given in a positive light. So God ordinarily says, you know, this is a good thing. Don't just be ignoring it because there was a couple of bad examples in the Scripture of people using these movings and promptings uh, in a bad light. Now, I, I need to hurry on if we're going to get to the subject of guidance. The next set of illustrations of subjective revelation are revelations that are based on and they point to the scriptures. And you can see here that the words for revelation are connected, first of all, to conviction of sin and repentance. Okay? You can read the Bible till you are blue in the face to a person who the Spirit of God has not plowed their heart, and they're going to be as hard as an, and as impenitent as ever. They need to have an inward revelation to open their eyes to this outward objective revelation of the Word of God, or they're not going to come to repentance. Um, and interestingly, a person can be convicted by the Holy Spirit and still not be um, uh, saved, and Hebrews 6 is an example of that. It's talking about apostates who had once repented. It says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, photos 
phantos, if they fall away, to renew them to repentance. So they had repentance, but they weren't saved, okay? So there is an illumination where people sorrow over sin, and it comes from the Spirit. But notice that first one. It says, He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so you've got a word for enlightenment or illumination, a word for revelation that deals with repentance. Last week we saw that faith is a gift of God. Not just saving faith, but faith throughout our lives is a gift of God. And uh, on that next one you can see that um, the word uh, revelation is uh, used in connection with a person coming to faith because revelation simply means the veil is taken away. Unbelievers have a veil on their eyes. They cannot see. They won't come to faith until God removes that and opens the eyes of their understanding. And so it explains how is it that some believe and others do not believe. Well, the people who believe, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. And Ephesians 1 says, apart from the working of God's mighty power in our lives, none of us would have believed, okay? But it speaks of it as being... Uh, as being a revelation. Likewise, John 6, 45 says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so notice what has to happen before a person can believe. He must be taught by God. He must have heard and learned from the Father. Now, if coming to faith, this is saving faith here, uh, if coming is faith, then the hearing and the learning precedes the faith. That's revelation. Last week, we saw that the assurance of faith is a gift. And if we make it up ourselves, it's presumption. It's not true faith. God has to give that. Romans 12:3 says, Every Christian has a measure of faith that God grants, but that can grow. And one of the reasons I'm even preaching on this is because Scripture indicates that the community of faith can grow in this and expand their ministry. For example, Paul told the Corinthians that he had, quote, hope that as your faith is increased we shall be enlarged by you in our sphere. And it's really a, a mysterious thing how this faith works. We were just finishing reading a book by Sergeant York, and I don't know how many of you guys have read that. It's really a cool story of this uh, uh, mountain guy, un, fairly uneducated, about, about a third-grade-level uh, third education. But uh, he had read many scriptures. He'd been drafted into the army for World War I, and uh, he had protested he doesn't believe in killing people. Um, and he goes through all of his process, but he's out there anyway. And uh, he ended up feeling okay about killing people if they were shooting at him. But, <laughs> but um, he had read scriptures that talked about the Lord protecting you and providing in your lives and Psalm 90 and 91 and Psalms like that. But... God could protect in many different ways. You know, if you die and you go to heaven, you're protected. You're safe in the Lord's arms from Satan's uh, attacks, right? And so how do you get from that to a faith? The Lord gave him an absolute faith and assurance from reading those scriptures that he was not going to die during that war, that he would come back. And he told uh, a number of people that. And then you see some of the things that he went through. is just a remarkable providence of God in his lives. At one point, there was 20, I think it was 20 machine gun nests, wasn't it, Jonathan or Joel? And they're all shooting at them, and everybody else is dead. I think there's five people that are hunkered down behind some trees, and they're not doing anything. And he's sitting there, at first prone, then he's standing up, and he's, he's a real marksman because he was a turkey hunter. And they practiced, you know, getting him through the head. And boom, boom. So he's knocking off these guys one after another, and he keeps yelling, I won't have to keep killing you guys if you'll stop shooting, you know. <laughs> and uh, he's just knocking one guy after another, and just, just lead pounding all around him, and none of it touches him. And he's just, it's given him that faith. Now, was it an infallible faith? Well, no. But he felt confident. It sure helped him to have a confidence that he can't die before his time. And so he was able to tech these guys off one after another and just be bold throughout that, that whole war. He ended up capturing, what was it, Joel? 140, 141 soldiers single-handedly and uh, marching, marching them off to camp, you know, holding the rifle at the major's head or something like that. Uh, but but uh, anyway, read John Murray on this. He's got an excellent article on guidance that deals with the subjective side. It's tied to the word. It's not something independent of the word, and it's definitely not infallible, but it's important nonetheless. Okay, the next category is the opening of our eyes at salvation, clearly called a revelation. And so I hope you see why I'm nervous 
when people say there's no more revelation, you know, only the Bible. Uh, I know what they mean. They mean that there is no more inspired revelation that occurs, and I agree with that, but that's what they ought to say. If you say that revelation has ceased when you're opposing the excesses that occur and the charismatic movement, what's going to happen is you're going to be ineffective because they're going to be able to point to all kinds of scriptures that talk about revelation, but they've misinterpreted it. They've misinterpreted it, what kind of revelation. So don't go on the pendulum swing too far in the other direction and deny the internal working of the Holy Spirit in the ways that we're going through in these overheads. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Unbelievers have a veil. They lack revelation in their minds. Hebrews 10.32 says, Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, Greek word, photosthentes, and so there's word for revelation, word for illumination used to describe the opening of our eyes at salvation. In the next section, we have Peter answering Jesus that he believes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's professing a doctrine. And Christ's response to him is flesh and blood has not revealed, there's the Greek word again, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. David, I mean, uh, Peter didn't even realize that this had been a revelation uh, to him. He had to be told that that was the case. And yet the opening of his eyes had to occur by this non-inspired revelation known as illumination that we speak about. Here's, um, here's how Paul words it, and he words this for all believers. He wants us to grow not only in love and in other things, but he wants us to grow in our doctrinal knowledge so that we're no longer a church that is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Well, the church of Jesus Christ is pretty tossed to and fro right now, but he's prophesying a time when they will grow into a mature man where they will be united in the faith and there won't be all of these doctrinal divisions. How is God going to bring that about? He's going to do it by two ways. And uh, the, the Greek words... Uh, that, uh, that talk about how he's going to do it are uh, photismos and um, uh, apocalypsis. Uh, and so look on the overhead at that uh, one verse, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, apocalypseos, in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know. And every Reformed Systematics theology that I have on my shelf says that has to refer to the ongoing illumination that uh, Christians are experiencing uh, right now. So don't be a rationalist in your approach to Scripture. Many people just think, okay, there's no longer any, you know, uh, revelation that God gives, so we just read it like any unbeliever would read it. No. We need to be in prayer like David was. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. We've got to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand the Scriptures are right. And so that's a subjective counterpart to the objective uh, revelation. The next category was the disciples' newly given authority to discern and cast out demons. Okay, they're engaging in spiritual warfare, and they're really excited by what they're learning. They're coming to Christ, and they're reporting to Him what's gone on. And, um, uh, and Christ prays to the Father. Uh, he says to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. And I forgot to put the Greek word up there, but it's the Greek word apocalypto. Next category is the understanding we need for sanctification. Now, you know the law. You want to keep the law. But you struggle in sometimes knowing, how do I do it? How do I get through these obstacles in my life? Well, we need illumination. Paul talks about the unbelieving Jews, again, having the veil on their minds, uh, lack of revelation. Then verse 18, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We need his discernment to know how to break through some of these problems in our sanctification. How do I apply the scriptures to this particular issue? Now, I give a couple of verses indicating the need for revelation relating to wisdom for decision-making. And hopefully by now you see all of these forms of revelation have a diff totally different character than the inspired revelation of the Word of God. Um, many cases, people don't even realize that they've had their minds opened and their understanding. It's sort of like regeneration. At the time that you're regenerated, all you know is that you are 
you know, you hate your sin all of a sudden. And you're, 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 you're fearful of judgment and you're, you're desirous of righteousness and you desire the Lord's working in your life. You look back on it and you say, ah, that's when I was regenerated because before I was totally dead to the things of the Spirit. I had no interest in them whatsoever. And from that moment on, all of a sudden, my heart was burning within me. And that's sort of the way it is with us. Sometimes we don't even understand um, uh, uh, what was going on. Philippians 3.15 speaks of an attitude of mind Paul wanted them to have, and he says, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. And there's that word for revelation again. And there are a lot of other words uh, that we could look at that aren't the words for revelation that I think are important. I'll just give you one example here. It's Ezra 1, verse 5. It says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all, here is that phrase, whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, they had had prophecies that, you know, eventually after 70 years, and now it's actually longer than that, that there would be different groups of people who would be coming. But I tell you, it would take quite something to move a person out of Babylon because it had become their home. God had told them, make it your home, plant vineyards, you know, settle down. It would be sort of like me saying, my ancestry is from uh, Germany. My dad came over when he was 16 years old. And uh, yeah, I'll go back to Germany now, you know, where my father lived. Well, I don't know anybody in Germany. I mean, it would just be, it, it would be incredibly difficult thing for me to do. It was incredibly difficult for these people to move. And I don't think that they would have done it if God had not stirred up their spirits to want to move over there. He had burdened them. In fact, the burden that God placed upon Nehemiah was so strong, so overwhelming, it made him feel sick. Now, next week, we're going to be saying, what do we do with these things? You know, how do we integrate it in, in a way in which um, uh, we won't be making mistakes? And we'll be looking at 28 biblical tests by which we can look at, um, at uh, 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 some of these... Um, subjective and providential and, and biblical issues. Okay, let, let me just quickly outline the dimensions of guidance, three dimensions. And the rest of the sermon we should just be able to fly through fairly quickly. Okay, on the triangle up there, three dimensions to uh, guidance. The top one, obviously, is the authoritative one. It's biblical guidance, speaking of the Spirit's authority in our lives. Then there's subjective guidance, which speaks of the Spirit's presence uh, in our lives, and then there's providential guidance, which speaks of God's working all things together for our good. It's His power in our lives. And there's only one of those three dimensions that is authoritative. It's the biblical guidance that's uh, up there at the top. Now, here's how Charles Hodge, uh, he's a, a great Reformed uh, uh, scholar, how he says it in his Systematics, Volume 1. He says, Christians admit that the children of God are led by the Spirit of God, that their convictions as to truth and duty, their inward character and outward conduct are molded by His influence. They are children unable to guide themselves who are led by an ever-present Father of infinite wisdom and love. This guidance is partly providential, ordering their external circumstances. And so that would be the bottom left side of that corner. He goes on, he says, partly through the Word, which is a lamp to their feet top part of the triangle, and then partly by the inward influence of the spirit on the mind, and that's the subjective side. All three fit together. I think it's a marvelous definition of guidance in Hodge's systematics. And I'm going to show in a moment um, how it's God's word that judges all three and tests all three. Now, you can find people who are uh, you know, camping on just one or maybe two of these modules, it's hard to find a lot of people who are balanced in, 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 in all three. I think Metter's book does excellent. And on that would be Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making and the Will of God. But both books are marred by completely rejecting the subjective side of guidance. Now, let me comment on how it is impossible for Metters or anybody else to avoid the subjective. They do it even though they maybe don't think that they are doing it. I'll just give you one example. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. We read that earlier. It doesn't say that the Scriptures bear witness. It says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now, why is His separate witness necessary? 
Well, it's because your name is not written in the Bible. Um, he doesn't bear witness independently of the Scripture, but to get from John 3.16 to an assurance of salvation takes more than just a syllogism. A syllogism is very helpful, but let me explain how rationalists uh, will typically approach this. They'll give three premises. First premise is if you believe in Christ's atonement, you will be saved, and they can give a Scripture for that, and that's solid. And the second premise, Phil Kaiser has believed. Conclusion, therefore, Phil Kaiser is saved. Now, what's iffy about that um, that syllogism is the second part, uh, the second premise there that Phil Kaiser uh, has believed. For years, I had doubts of my salvation. I just had a real hard time understanding. Now, I never once questioned premise number one. It came straight out of the Bible. It's the inerrant word of God. I could bank on it. I never questioned that. Never had any doubts whatsoever of that. But that is the Bible's premise. Premise two is not the Bible's premise. It's Phil Kaiser's premise. Phil Kaiser is not inerrant, right? And uh, am I saved? Probably yes. You know, I am saved. But we all know, uh, uh, I mean, this is from your perspective. I'm convinced I'm saved, right? Because <laughs> uh, the Spirit's given me assurance. But from your perspective, you'd say, oh, yeah, probably Phil Kaiser is saved. He gives profession of faith, you know. He irritates me sometimes, but... He's probably saved, but we've all known pastors who have apostatized, right? And they have become, in fact, one guy up in Canada. He was an evangelist. He apostatized. He became an atheist. And to his dying breath, he was an atheist. And so the iffy part of this is premise number two, Phil Kaiser has believed. We know that the Bible says that there is false faith. We know that the Bible says that... Um, there is dead faith, and so how do we know that that person has a living, God-given faith, or if it's a human-generated, dead faith? Well, we don't know just automatically by observation, and it takes the Holy Spirit's witness within to take us from John 3:16 to, yes, Father, I know that you are my Abba Father. I have that intimacy. Can you see that? We need the subjective side of the spirits working in to get the Bible from out there to in here, where we have the comfort of the scriptures within. And so that's what we're, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, in the book of 1 John, it does not give us assurance, and the whole book's dealing with assurance, but it does not give us assurance by having a syllogism. It gives all three dimensions of the triangle. It's the Spirit's presence especially gives us assurance. Now, back to Romans 8, Paul said, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. By whom we cry out. It's the Spirit that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. He's the one that generates that assurance within us. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. Not because he gave us his word, that's true too. We have to have premise one, right? But for premise two, we have to have the spirit within who says, yes, Phil, <laughs> your faith, you know, is quickened by me. It, it, it's, it, it's an assurance that is God-given. And so the moment we become Christians, this subjective side of guidance kicks in. And I'll be outlining several forms of that next week. Now, before I move on, I want you to notice the direction of the arrows that are on this thing, on this chart up here. The bottom uh, arrow uh, is an arrow simply because it's showing linear time, not because it's judging the subjective providence, though it does, I mean, the subjective guidance, though it does that as well. <clears throat> but providential guidance, you know, as it moves a long time, yeah, they, they could probably see that there, as it moves a long time, eventually you'll know whether it really was providential guidance. It'll, it'll prove itself to be true. On the other hand, you do not have the arrows going up from providence or subjective to the Bible because the subjective and the providential do not judge the Bible. It's only the Bible that judges the other two. So that's the purpose for the arrows uh, on that church. The Bible judges all of life. So keep in mind, these are not three forms, I mean, three competing forms of, of guidance. They all dovetail together. They're absolutely necessary to each other. Let me give you another example. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 guarantees that God's providence will never come into conflict with his moral will. He guarantees he'll never put us into a position where we have to sin. 
So he says, I'm going to so order all of the things in your life that it will meet up with biblical guidance, plus I'm going to give my spirit within you who lusts against the flesh and the spirit against, I mean, the flesh against the spirit, and there's going to be a yearning and a driving of that spirit toward fulfilling the biblical um, mandates as well. And so all three dovetail together. Now, I was really wishing we could get into the practical today, and we won't be able to till next week. But let me give you one more chart, and I've given this chart to uh, you probably about four years ago, and um, I think it's a, a helpful chart. Some people think of counselors as another form of guidance, and I don't see it that way. Um, I think there's only three forms of guidance. Rather, what, I, what, what this chart is to, uh, to help with is, is we need to realize we make mistakes we make mistakes in interpreting biblical guidance because people interpret the scriptures a different way, right? We make mistakes in interpreting providence and we make mistakes even interpreting the subjective things that the Spirit is doing within us. And so by going to counselors who have the same biblical guidance and providential guidance and subjective guidance, they can help us to see some blind spots in our lives. They can give us a new angle that we maybe haven't seen before. Maybe they can confirm what we were talking about. In fact, Metters had a great example of a, of a person who did, he didn't even have to say a word. He just asked some questions. Now, why did you say that? Why did you say that? And as this guy's explaining himself, he'd asked for advice. Which way should I go? As he's explaining, he says, oh, I guess I know what the answer is after all. <laughs> and sometimes that happens, you know. People, just by verbalizing, they realize, okay, I've been rationalizing. I know what I should be doing. But talking to people and sometimes getting feedback really helps to objectify uh, the process. And um, as I said, next week we're going to give 28 points uh, by which our guidance can be tested. But I think we need to have more humility in guidance. There's too many people who even will reject your biblical guidance because they say, well, the Lord's uh, led me on this. Well, I don't care how the Lord's led subjectively. The Bible is the judge of all things. And um, uh, it's a sign of mature immaturity when people are driven by the subjective. I'd much rather people err in the direction of matters than err in the direction of becoming a subjectivist. But balance, I think, is best. So sorry to leave you dangling. That's as far as we're going to get today. Uh, we've set the foundation, and foundations are kind of ugly. You know, they're not rhetorically very helpful. But I thought you needed this foundation before we build the building next week and get into some of the fun stuff of, of the practical issues of guidance as a whole. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are indeed the God who guides your people. And I pray that each one of us would enter into an understanding and a comfort and a confidence of what it means to be led by your Spirit through the Word, through the providence, and through your inward working within us. Father, I pray that uh, as we study these uh, the Scriptures uh, and, uh, over the next week as well, that uh, the illumination of your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding and uh, quicken these scriptures to our hearts. May we be built up and strengthened in our ability to serve you better. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.